dust and breath me on Welcome to This Good Word, where every week we look at one single word in an endless discovery of reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. My name is Steve Weens. I'm a pastor, I'm a writer, and I'm a father of three crazy boys. My hope with this podcast is to create an environment where you can continually discover who you actually are in the world. So feel free to check out my website at steveweens.com, S-T-E-V-E-W-I-E-N-S.com, where you can find links to my blog, to purchase my book, which is called Beginnings, The First Seven Days of the Rest of Your Life, and also links to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Enjoy the podcast, everybody. Hey friends, before we get into the podcast today, which was incredible, uh, Jer Swigert with the Global Immersion Project, I mean, I'm going to listen to this several times just because it was so good. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, I want to remind you that uh, I have an event coming up here on June 25th, right here in St. Paul, Minnesota. The event is called Sobriety and Spirit. And Seth Haynes and I are going to talk addiction, grace, sobriety. So whether you're addicted to performance, alcohol, drugs, sex, approval, body image issues, we're going to try to create a safe space where we can talk about those things and where we can feel less alone and where we can walk toward wholeness together. My friend Matt Mobers is going to provide some music, and you are not going to want to miss this event. Uh, spots are actually filling quickly, so get online, steveweens.com slash events. You can see all the details of when it's going to be, where it's going to be, hotel information, and all that stuff. So check on my website, steveweens.com slash events, and I really hope to see you there. All right, friends, uh, this is... Episode 41 is just, I mean, it is beautiful. I loved it, and I think you're going to love it too. So get into it. Everybody, we're on episode 41, and the words, plural, this week are Global Immersion Project. I'm here with Jer Swiger today. I'm so excited. Hey, Jer. Hey, guys. I'm also here with Steve Haynes. Hainsy. Hello. Glad to be here. My good friend. Anyway, J.R. Swigert is co-founding director of the Global Immersion Project. Uh, J.R. has been working in the field of peacemaking and conflict transformation since 2005 when he acted as a liaison between an international NGO, the faith community, the Pakistani military, and the United Nations. So he's got that going for him. That all happened in the aftermath of a massive earthquake in northern Pakistan. He's been a church planter, a lead pastor, and he now lives in Bend, Oregon with his wife Jackie and his three kids. His current great passion is to equip men and women to be everyday peacemakers 
by taking them into areas of massive global conflict. So welcome, Jer. So glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, Steve Haynes is one of my best friends. He's a great musician. He's the associate pastor at Genesis, the church where I work as well. He lives in the jewel of the, of the Twin Cities. Thank you. Lives in the jewel of the Twin Cities, Robbinsdale, Minnesota, home yeah. of Travail. Come on. Home of Pig Ate My Pizza. There we go. Home of the new brewery called... Wicked Wart. Wicked Wart. Haven't the, been there. Have you? I have not. No. I'm a, no. Cutting down on my drinking in public. <laughs> That's wise. Now, I think the Minneapolis breweries could really crush the Bend breweries. Don't you think, Steve? I don't know much about Bend, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, if I could just insert real quick, that's quite a stretch, fellas. <laughs> well, here we are, you guys. We're going to dive right in. Jer, um, so I remember reading your blog uh, years and years ago about your experience up in the mountains with this Pakistani army. Can you just tell us what led you to Pakistan that, that time in 2005 after the earthquake? And how did you get involved with the UN and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that that really serves for me as um, as the watershed moment that kicks me into the work that I'm doing right now. Uh, it, what, what happened was uh, that that particular day started off like any other beautiful, sunny San Francisco Bay Area day. Um, I had just gotten a run in, and I ended at my favorite coffee shop, uh, grabbed a coffee in the newspaper, and front page story was that a 7.2 earthquake had ravaged northern Pakistan, and thousands of people were dead three million people were homeless in the himalayas and winter was coming and uh, at that point in my life i, I was 25 and uh I, honestly i i probably would have struggled to point out pakistan on uh, on the globe and um, i didn't have any meaningful relationships with muslims at all and and this is still in the wake you know of 9-11 so this is four years um, in, in its aftermath. And, uh, and pocket, the only thing I knew about Pakistan is that's where the Tora Bora caves were. That's where we thought Osama bin Laden was. Um, and these people are supposed to be our quote unquote enemy. And, um, and that's, that's all the data I knew when I read the article, it was one of those moments where something just broke inside of me. I crumbled at that coffee shop. And, um, and so, and I, I had never crumbled like that before. And, uh, so I called two mentors uh, one mentor said, you know, I think that there's a chance that Pakistan is going to crack the window for internationals to come in uh, and do some work because they need that kind of support. Uh, and I've got a contact that I think I can maybe get you in the country. And then I called my second mentor uh, and he said, you know, if there's ever a way for you to get in, uh, get over there, I'll fund the trip. And uh, so three and a half weeks later, I had an expediated Pakistani visa in my passport and found myself on an airplane to Islamabad, <laughs> Pakistan. Wow. And uh, and I was one of two U.S. Americans on that flight and uh, landed. There was a there was a little dude standing there with my name on a sign. And <laughs> I got I got in his van and he drove me eight hours to the very north of Pakistan, uh, which is where all of the news right now around Pakistan is all focused on the tribal villages of the north um, where I was. He, he dropped me off at a UN helipad, and I literally, ha I have very little idea what I'm actually going to be doing when I'm over there. It was just kind of one of those adventures and saying yes moments, and and uh, he drops me off at a UN helipad. I get into a UN helicopter. They fly me to the top of the Himalayas. Uh, I'm, I'm writing in my journal on the, uh, on the flight up, just kind of going, where am I and what is in store for me? Jump off the helicopter in a village called Jabba. 
and uh, a Pakistani general met me there and he said, how long are you here? And I said, three weeks. And, uh, and he go, he sees my notebook and he says, um, you write. And I go, yeah. And he said, your job for the next three weeks will be, uh, uh, to act as the communications liaison between the tribal villages of the North, the Pakistani military and the United Nations. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And, and what, what that meant, uh, what that meant was I sat, sat at a fire with the general uh, for three weeks and listened to village elders from all sorts of different areas come to, um, come to our fire and talk to us about what happened when the earth shook and um, what they lost, what they needed to make it through the winter. And then I would do everything I could possibly do to negotiate with the United Nations commander whenever he landed um, in our village to get those supplies up there. And then we would direct them out to one of 157 villages. In that time, I toured the Tora Bora Caves. Uh, I developed brotherhood relationships with um, with the Pakistani uh, military personnel who were in the village. Um, uh, my affection, the, the, the hospitality that I experienced from the people in this village was unprecedented, unlike I'd ever experienced in my life. Um, but the real moment was the last day I was there. There was a group of village elders that came in. Um, and when they started to walk into the village, all of my now friends from the village I was staying in, they raised their their Russian Kalashnikovs, their machine guns, and and all of a sudden guns are pointing at faces, and and this was this was very very intense, uh, and up until that point, you know everybody everybody carried old school machine guns like we carry cell phones, so I kind of gotten used to that, but I I wasn't used to guns and faces and um very intense four hours of screaming and yelling there's a conversation that now happens at the fire uh, a long long conversation that was very intense and through translation i begin to understand that the village elders that just came in their village had been civil at civil war with the village that i was living in for over 30 years um, but they recognized that that village was the only one that the helicopter could land in and so the set of elders that came in, they recognized the only way that our people are going to make it through the winter is if somehow we broker peace with the, the tribe we're warring against. And so near the end of the conversation, the general, uh, Mumtaz, he looks at me and he says, I need you to write a peace treaty. And, uh, and so I, uh, I pick up my notebook and I just start writing what I understand are the agreements that are being made in this conversation. And, uh, and then when I'm done, I, uh, Mumtaz translates it out. Everybody is satisfied with it. And then he looks at me and he goes, where do I sign? And so like, I draw a line and, and Mumtaz signs it. Uh, I, draw, I drew two more lines for the two different village elders to sign it. And then he had me draw a line for, uh, for myself uh, to sign. And then another line for the United Nations commander to sign it. And, um, and what happened for me in that moment, because now this group of elders is leaving the village, no longer at gunpoint. And, um, and that's the moment in my life. It was a moment of deep conversion when the gospel went HD for me. And I realized really for the first time that in Christ, God waged a decisive peace. And it meant that people who weren't going to make it, were going to make it now. Yeah. And, um, and, and, but secondly, I just got to be a part of that as a follower of Jesus. I just got to be a part of helping make a wrong thing, right? Which means that following Jesus, it was the first time I understood that following Jesus means that we join God in ushering in the world that he's making. That that central to following Jesus is that we actually move toward the pain in the world equipped to heal. 
that that peacemaking and being a reconciling presence is really our vocation as followers of Jesus. And um, and from that point forward, you know, that was now 11 years ago. That's just really shaped the trajectory of my life. It's it's shaped the my study and my reading and my mentorship and national and international conversations that I'm a part of because I I want to learn how to integrate peacemaking into my vocation uh, as uh, as a follower of Jesus. Wow, Jer. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many things in that that I want to pull out. But the first thing is just, so you have a longing or an experience and then you call two mentors. Yeah. I mean, that just like, I think some of us would just sit with that for a while and just wonder if God was going to show up or we would read some books about it. You decided to take action right there. You called mentors. You said, what should I do? And then, you know, I think you should go. And then, oh, by the way, I'll pay for it. I think there's something to be learned there about taking action, right? And that, and I know you enough to know that you want to be deliberate. You want to listen. But then there comes a time where I think, or let me pose that as a question. Do you think that we oftentimes miss opportunities to be involved in the peace that God is trying to make in the world because we simply don't act? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that one of the, um, I, I guess one of the vices in uh, in American evangelical Christianity in particular is that I think we've done a great job bringing people to a point of discomfort. Uh, like people have, they people know we we know what it's like to be moved, to feel that thing break in us, but we haven't been discipled in terms of how do we actually move beyond the discomfort into action. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, so we've discipled people to the edge of discomfort, and then we've taught them to stay there and pay attention to their discomfort, and we haven't given them tools to really do anything with that. And so then what happens is that discomfort begins to dissipate and fade away, and I feel okay again. It's like when I go to a really, uh, I go to a, a riveting movie. I'm impacted by that movie, and I, I'm just kind of thinking about it afterwards. And eventually, you know, I have, uh, you know, I, I have an ice cream cone, and two hours later, I'm okay again. I'm not really thinking about it anymore. I think that's similar to like when we come in touch with the things that are broken in our world, whether those are interpersonal relationships, systemic injustice, or international conflict, um, we notice it and we become uncomfortable, but we don't we don't know what to do. Uh, for me, a high, high value um, since the moment I said yes to Jesus at the age of 19 is to surround myself with um, with sages, with with men and women who are further down the road than me, who can teach me what it means to follow Jesus, who can discern with me, um, people who I can ask really messy, hard questions to, and they can give me insight. Or like in this case, I wasn't thinking, gosh, this break inside of me means I need to go to Pakistan. I was just going, gosh, there's, there, I'm, I'm undone. I need to talk to people that I trust I trust the way that they follow Jesus. I trust the way that they listen to the Spirit and they live what they hear the Spirit say to them. I, I think the Spirit is doing something to me. I'm too young to recognize what it really is, and so I need their help in bringing some clarity to the message that's um, that's being spoken to me. You know, and so, um, but the the types of coaches and mentors that I've always pursued are um, are less thought leaders and more practitioners. Yeah. I'm I'm drawn to people who have a who have a practice of listening well and living what they hear. You know, these are the people who are always moving beyond the threshold of discomfort um, into the adventure of, uh, of the God life, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways. And so I've learned how to move beyond discomfort into action because I've had people 
uh, I've had people like like my dad. I've had people like like Sam or Tim in this case, uh, teaching me how to do that. You know, escorting me across the discomfort threshold. It's beautiful. Well, that Pakistan story could be a movie. So I'm going to try to sell the rights to that and really make a lot of money, and then donate at least one percent of that to the Global Immersion Project. So, uh, Steve, you are a person in my life that I think that is like what Jared just described. That you want to move past. Um, just thinking about things and into acting. And an example of that recently for you is your buddy Ryan said, hey, I'm going to go to Israel-Palestine with this group called TGIP, the Global Immersion Project. Would you like to go? And, uh, you know, several months later, you're there. So kind of walk us through that process of you getting the invitation, what was happening in your heart, and, you know, why, why did you go? You and Heidi went. Yeah, and uh, the opportunity was an amazing opportunity when Ryan asked, and I saw that it was an amazing opportunity. And uh, Jerry, you and I had shaken hands uh, kind of at the most at that point. But I actually, if you remember, I came to you, Weens, and I just go, okay, here's the opportunity. Uh, I think it'd be great, but honestly, like there's so much going on in life right now. How can this be the most important thing? This can take a lot of work, a lot of time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting that the voice of, of a mentor, but the, the need for the humility to ask what is the right thing to do, I think that's the beginning of any good journey. Yeah. And so I would, I would say that uh, you actually pushed me over the, the tipping point there on that one in a good way. So that it hewed the whole experience from, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be blessed with. I don't know what needs to change in me but trusting that there's going to be something there to find. So it, the, right from the beginning, it was a learning experience. And yeah, I mean, absolutely, at this point, has changed my life. The journey, uh, Jer and John, TJP, do such a good job of walking us through, opening our hearts, opening our minds, putting down maybe preconceived ideas, um, which I think is so important to be able to go through transformation, any kind of transformation, is first put down what I'm carrying. Yeah, big time. So, Jer, um, so we're talking about the Global Immersion Project. So walk us through how that was born. Because 2005, to my understanding, you're working at a church in the Bay Area. Uh, you, were, you, were, you just had planted this thing called The Door, which started out to be a Sunday night service. Then it became its own church plant. Um, how did you get from there, from this writing a peace treaty in the mountains of northern Pakistan in 2005, to starting the Global Immersion Project and, and kind of tell us what that is and what you do. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so came home from Pakistan, obviously completely undone and remade, you know, and, and, and part of that obviously shapes, uh, shapes the method of the Global Immersion Project, which I'll comment on in a second. But I, I'm really a firm believer that transformation requires intentional displacement. You know, we, we need to find ourselves in places that are way beyond uh, our comfort zone and, uh, and it's in those places that were found informed by God. And so like, these are the things that are, I'm beginning to think about as I'm coming home from, um, Pakistan. I'm also obviously thinking about peace and reconciliation and my whole understanding of gospel has been reframed. And so I enter into seminary. I went to Fuller. Uh, I did my entire, uh, my entire MDiv up in Northern California. And at the same time was planting a church, 
uh, almost by accident, I guess, in the Bay Area, but uh, but also with intention. Like I wanted to see, I, I was meeting so many people in the Bay Area that um, that were like me in that they were creative, they were innovators, they they were solution minded, they were forward thinkers, they dreamt about a, a more beautiful future, but they dreamt about it with a shovel in their hand. In other words, they were willing to get dirty and and usher in, like create the the future that they wanted to see in the world, and um, they were intrigued by Jesus and wanted nothing to do with the church, and so. Um, they were a group of people that I think had an elevated kingdom consciousness in that they really cared about the things that God cared about, but they didn't know who the king was. And then I'm in this, I'm a part of this big, huge church that everybody's crystal clear on who the king is and has no idea how to actually engage kingdom. <laughs> and so like, I, I just, I, I'm someone that wanted, that has always wanted to live in the nexus of king and kingdom, you know, and I think kingdom consciousness is an unbelievable avenue to king. And I think knowledge uh, and, and experience of king can do nothing but pull us into an expression of kingdom. And so, so Open Door was really formed uh, wanting to see king and kingdom collide and um, and change the some of the things that were happening in the Bay Area. So started that. And then um, so I'm, I'm in seminary. I'm planting this church at the end of my seminary career. The last class that I took was a just peacemaking course um, uh, facilitated by doctors Glenn Stassen, David Gushy at Mercer and uh, Mark Gopin at George Mason. And um, it was just a riveting experience. The context of the classroom uh, was in Israel, Palestine, and the people that we were traveling with just had the keys to everywhere that you're not supposed to go in the Middle East, and uh, and it was unbelievable. That's where John and I met, my colleague and co-founder of Global Immersion, and we met in, in a hotel lobby in East Jerusalem and um, became fast friends, and then recognized that he and I were both on a similar journey. We were pastors of unique expressions of the church on the West Coast. And we're asking really significant questions about how we increase the capacity of the North American church for the work of reconciliation um, and, and, work of, and the work of reconciliation being like actually beyond just personal, like interpersonal forgiveness and being beyond the one conversation about racial reconciliation that the white church wants to have every year, mostly on Dr. King Day. Like there's, there, there's got to be a larger, more robust theology and set of practices that we can engage and live in um, as followers of Jesus to join God in his mission of reconciliation. And so we're asking all of these questions. We're journeying through Israel-Palestine. We were meeting unbelievable people. And John and I uh, were both just pretty pretty aggressive relationally. And so when we meet someone that we're inspired by, we'll just go up and say, hey, can we hang out? You know. And so, uh, so we did that. And it meant that we got to meet a lot of really incredible people over there. And, uh, and then in the bus after these encounters, John and I are asking the questions that would become the genesis of the Global Immersion Project. Questions like, why had we never heard um, any pastor give a real robust um, explanation of peace and reconciliation and connecting it to the mission of God? Um, why had we as pastors never talked about peace and reconciliation? Why is it that peace seems to be relegated to the stuff of unicorns and rainbows rather than the most gritty, subversive, costly way of living life? Like there's there, there's a, well, why is peace and peacemaking more connected with a hippie movement than the crucified one? You, do you know what I'm saying? And so like yeah. we're asking questions like these and um, and that set of questions led to a set of hunches that um, that peacemakers um, are are maybe born, but are probably formed. And yeah. so, 
you form peacemakers and um, and if you form peacemakers, could it be that you could actually start to impact the culture of the u s American church like what if we could actually reintegrate peace and reconciliation into our shared vocation as followers of Jesus, and what would happen in the world if the u s American church was an instrument of peace? And so th- those are some big questions that really started to fuel forward some experiments that John and I engaged in. And to be honest, the birth of global immersion was not – we didn't design uh, – we weren't thinking about a thing, like a national or international thing. We were actually thinking about a mechanism to increase the capacity of our own people for this work. So my, my people in the Open Door community in the in the Bay Area and John's in, in San Diego and – um, and after the first experiment ran, we were just like, this is so much beyond our own people. And and so for us, the last five years have been a, a real radical development of um, of our work. Today, the Global Immersion Project is a peacemaking training organization. We're simply reintegrating peace and reconciliation back into our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so Lynn Hybels, uh, one of our mentors, Uh, We heard her say a few years back that peacemaking is the next frontier of discipleship. And um, and we really, really agree with that. We're seeing that like um, the Christianity has to move beyond moral intellectualism and social satisfaction and, you know, agreed upon and pre-organized service projects. It's got to look like Mm -hmm. a way of life where we incarnate. That is, we actually move toward what's broken in our world with a gracious, healing, compassionate, curious presence, you know, and, um, and, and it turns out it takes a lot of training. Like we have to learn how to do that. Um, most, most poignantly, uh, we have to learn how to do that because we're trained to deal with conflict by our experience that we've had. Right. So, um, so most of us have either been trained in our upbringing to run away from conflict because it's terrifying or to run to conflict equipped to win, you know, th- so those are, those are, kind of the two ways that we deal with it. And, and we're teaching a, a very different kind of, um, of method of dealing with conflict that, first of all, conflict isn't wrong or scary or bad. It's actually the most fertile ground for relationships to flourish when we deal with it well. And so we're teaching people how to move toward it humbly and, and, uh, and with compassion and with a set of tools uh, to heal. So everything that we do is focused on the U.S. American church, every training initiative, every, um, every blog we write, every learning lab that we engage in, every retreat, every time we speak. We're talking about capacity raising. We're talking theologically and practically about how we become instruments of peace in our own place. That's amazing, Jir, uh, and you're just so articulate about that. I remember, so um, our church sent five people out to Israel-Palestine. Steve Haynes was one of them, and Steve, you were texting me during this one session you guys were having, and you sent me a quote that I just was like, oh my goodness, and it was really about, um, it was about dealing, someone was saying it was about dealing like we don't. Oh, gosh, now, I, now I'm forgetting the actual There were quote, so many quotes. I yeah. don't even remember what day. I mean, I sent you a bunch. Well, the one that I'm, that I'm talking about is like we, we deal like I fight against myself oh. and you fight against yourself. Yeah, conflict is not bringing uh, uh, tension and conflict between you and your enemy. Uh, peacemaking is not bringing conflict between you and your enemy. You remember this, Jared? Com- uh, peacemaking is bringing conflict between you and yourself and your enemy and themselves, and then you meet together in friendship. That's that. So the conflict is in our own self between what we want, our desires, 
right? Our selfishness, our, our, our blindness. And we come in conflict with that. And that's the transformation piece. That's how we're able to move towards anybody as a friend and not as an enemy. Exactly. And I, I loved that. When you sent that, that, that immediately both invited me to something bigger and better and kind of scared the hell out of me. Oh, totally. <laughs> you know, because, um, oh my gosh, that means that there is really a fight with myself to, because um, I get hooked, I get snagged on all kinds of things. And certainly, like GR, you said um, that um, we don't, we don't, we are not given tools uh, to deal with conflict well. We either um, want to win or we either run away. And I think when it comes to ourselves, even that's true. We want to either master the thing that we're dealing with or we just avoid it versus saying, all right, that's real. Um, I'm not, I don't know what to do. That scares me. I'm, I am, I'm even conflicted about how to handle that. So can you, can you talk Jer, about like even practically what are, what are like, what is an everyday peacemaker? If you were to say an everyday peacemaker is this, what's your answer to, to that question? Yeah, 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 for sure. Let, I, I'll answer that. I want to just tag something onto what you guys are, are talking about. Um, when we're in Israel, Palestine, uh, you know, we, we spend we spend 80% of our time meeting with people that are the most radical peacemakers in the world. Unbelievable. On the front lines at the highest cost, giving their lives to see warring people become family and friends uh, or friends and family. Um, and then we spend, you know, 20% of our time with people who are kind of dwell on the edges of ideological spectrum and um, and we're learning we're always figuring out like how do you how do you be in relationship with people with whom you disagree and so it's just a, an amazing spread of, of people but when you guys are talking about this one, one of the people that we meet with is uh, his name is Sheikh Ihab he's the teaching imam of Al-Aqsa Mosque which is the third most holy site in all of Islam which places uh, the Sheikh as one of the most prominent Muslim theologians in the entire world and um, we have a, a two-hour conversation with him about Jerusalem, Jesus, and jihad from the perspective of the Quran. So when was the last time you <laughs> sat down with a prominent Muslim theologian and talked a little Jesus and jihad, right? And um, unbelievable, unbelievable conversation. One of the things that he says that I think is so important, and it pertains to what we're talking about here, um, is he says there, there are two forms of jihad that are actually – uh, that are actually validated in the Quran. The first and most important is that you declare war against any part of yourself that is dark. Wow. Um, and and it's then he would say once you've declared war and come out victorious um, with the darkest parts of yourself, it's then that you're able to extend peace to others. And um, which is very similar to our friend Daoud Nasser, who uh, who is a is a farmer. He lives on a hilltop farm, completely surrounded by Israeli settlements, and um, and they are just living out a creative form of nonviolent resistance that is the epitome of the Sermon on the Mount. I have never in my life seen a follower of Jesus live the Sermon on the Mount like um, like Daoud and his family. And he says that um, unless you are at peace within, you have no peace to offer. You know, and so they're really like peacemaking. Even in our conversations, we can oftentimes talk externally like peacemaking is between you and me. It's about systemic injustice in our place. It's about the black white race divide, or it's about the Muslim Christian thing, or it's about you know the educational disparity, or, or all of these systemic issues, or it's about international stuff. 
stuff and we have to figure out how to how to deal with these massive conflicts and we would actually say no it actually starts inside of us we have to recognize that we are reconciled as followers of Jesus and we need to live in into our identity as the reconciled beloved first and foremost and then begin to actually be a presence of reconciliation in our place and so there really is a uh, there, there's a, I think there's a chronology uh, to that. And for me, as an everyday peacemaker, it's an ongoing everyday. I have to embrace the fact that that I am um, the reconciled beloved again today, you know. So an everyday peacemaker. So it kind of starts there. Like I recognize that I'm the reconciled beloved. But what John and I did is we just went through the story of God and we just said, okay, like when because God, if God waged a decisive peace in Jesus. Uh, and it worked, that would make God the great peacemaker. And we just went to work and said, what did that look like? Like, what were the practices, the divine practices of of peacemaking um, from our perspective as we looked at the story of God? Um, and as we went through the entire story, we just saw four practices raised to the surface. And um, those four practices are see, immerse, contend, and restore. See, immerse, contend, and restore. And I'll, I'll just hit them really briefly and then describe them. But first grounded in the story of God, um, from the moment we picked the fruit in the garden, we have a God who saw our humanity and our dignity. He saw our image or he saw his image in us. Um, he saw the reality of our brokenness, of our pain, of our shame. And this is where grace enters the story, right? Because God, the master author, didn't put the pencil down in that moment. Um, God saw it all and what God saw became the most important thing in the cosmos to him. It stopped him dead in his tracks. Uh, and, and then number two, he actually immersed into the radical center of our brokenness. Like the ne- after we pick the fruit in the garden, the next thing that we find is God walking in the cool of the, of the garden. So he draws near. He actually moves into the middle of it. He doesn't stay aloof and distant and he doesn't crush. He's walking in the cool of the garden. You know, and, and that says something about God's posture. It's, it says something about humility and generosity and grace and curiosity. And then he asks a question. So isn't that something that when God immersed for the first time, he immersed with a question? Uh, unbelievable. You know, so God immersed. And then in the in the garden, we actually find that God contends and he contends at and it, it's costly. It's costly. It costs blood for God to contend, uh, to cover our shame and to begin the work of restoring the relationship between us. And then in the garden, God made a forever promise that one day the broken shalom would be, would be healed, that he would take the initiative to, to heal the severed relationship. And then all through the story, we keep seeing a a community of people sorting out the complexity of the God life, stumbling into idolatry, stumbling into pain. At times the story is beautiful and at times it's unbelievably fractured. And over and over and over again, we discover a God who sees, immerses, contends, and then reminds them that there's a day coming uh, that I'm going to restore this, that the severed relationship is going to be put back together decisively. You know, we see it in the immigrant journey. We see it through the prophets when, when they're in exile. Um, and then, uh, and then we have the person of Jesus arrive on the scene. And when Jesus shows up, it is the epitome of a God who sees and, um, and a God who has immersed, like that's incarnation. God actually immersed into an enemy camp, you know? And by the way, when God immersed, uh, in the, in the person of Jesus, he hung out for 30 years before he really did anything. 
which says something about the the patience and the endurance of immersion that it's not a quick fix it's like come and and be present and set up residence in the in the middle of the pain you know um, obviously Jesus life is marked by contending costly and creative ways of healing what was broken in the world ultimately we see that on the cross where we discover that God's contending for us was not going to happen through military power and and overthrow. It was going to happen through creative, selfless sacrifice. So the the epitome of contending is getting creative in love. Uh, and then the cross and empty tomb meant that God actually restored. He made, he made good on His promise to Father Abraham that uh, that the shalom between us would be restored. But I think often we end the story there, and then we live in this like state of confusion. Like, okay, if if the cross and the empty tomb worked, then then why do we live in a world that seems so progressively divided by race and and ethnicity and religion and status and politic and war and pain? Like it doesn't seem like the work of the cross actually made a difference. Um, we love to carry the story all the way into the resurrected Jesus, where um, when Jesus shows up uh, in the upper room. He shows up and he says, peace be with you when he arrives. And he says, my peace I give to you when he leaves. And we understand that as Jesus making a declarative statement, peace has been established. The resurrected Jesus is saying that all of what was severed and and brutal and broken, it has been put back together. We can now be reconciled in our relationship with the Father. And then in that parting word, uh, it's a commissioning my peace I give to you. Go and make real the peace that I just established on the cross and through the empty tomb. So that's a commissioning moment of us to go and live as everyday peacemakers, joining God in making real the peace that He established. Uh, he established on the cross, and so, and then like we see Jesus, in, you know, the resurrected Jesus post restoration, realizing that there's still a severed relationship in His life, namely between He and Peter. Right. And so you actually see the resurrected Jesus then going and doing some horizontal peacemaking. Like there's something to be tended to here. The cross worked, but we still have to deal with the brokenness of our relationship. And so he, Jesus sees, immerses, contends and restores one more time uh, before his ascension. And so for us, an everyday peacemaker uh, is, I guess, another word for a follower of Jesus, if we're really going to be honest about it. And um, but an everyday peacemaker is really marked by four practices. They're men and women who see the humanity and the dignity and the image of God in everyone. They see the plight and the pain of people. They see their own contributions to what's broken around them. Um, they immerse into the radical center of the pain. They step off the road of comfort, or like we were talking about before, they step beyond the discomfort into reality, into the pain. And they step there with with compassion and with curiosity, not with quick fixes and diagnoses. The third, uh, everyday peacemakers contend. That means that we don't get even, we get creative in love. Uh, contending for an everyday peacemaker is not fixing something for someone else. Contending is far more about costly ways of accompanying people who are in the pain. It's figuring out how, where do I leverage and where do I lay down my privilege to pursue the flourishing of, of this person or these people caught in this in the wake of this unjust system or international conflict. Um, and then the fourth practice, everyday peacemakers are people who restore. And we want to say this, um, and we're really clear on this, that, that we actually don't do the work of restoration. Uh, the spirit of the risen one is the one who restores. Um, we just simply get to be a part of it. So as we see, immerse, and contend, we find ourselves 
watching mustard seeds of restoration spring to life all around us, whether that's in a broken relationship that's no longer broken, or that's a, a friend who was wrestling with addiction who no longer is, or it's the it's a it's an unjust system that's beginning to actually turn a corner uh, toward justice, or it's something international that's happening that we're actually playing a significant role as U.S. American Christians um, in seeing in seeing it change on the other side of the world. So that's how I, that's how we would talk about everyday peacemaking. Beautiful. And I think <clears throat> I'm just imagining explosions happening right now in, in the mind of listeners. Because I think, again, that's such a, uh, um, sometimes the word action gets a pejorative sense. It's like, oh, we're just about doing. But I think that combines listening and learning with going. And I think lately I've been really thinking about this concept as like um, when we talk about judgment, and Jesus says, do not judge or you'll be judged. We automatically hear that and we say, well, I, I, sh I shouldn't judge or else God will judge me. Instead of saying judgment is an energy that if you partner with it, you play by its rules, right? So if you partner with judging, you're going to judge yourself. You're going to judge others. You're going to judge God. So it's not like you're going to get punished by being judged. It's just, no, you're, you're going to play by those rules because it's an energy, and love and peace is an energy. Shalom is an energy. It's a force. It's it's the force of the spirit. So if you if you cooperate with that energy, you're gonna start playing by by that rules, and you're gonna you're gonna start. Your eyes are gonna be opened, and then you're gonna have opportunities to immerse. You're gonna see something in your world that, and and you might say, "That's not right. That's not right." So how can I learn? How can I? come alongside someone who knows more than me and so for me i think it's it's more about what energy in the world am i partnering with am i partnering with the shalom of god or am i partnering with the story and, and so like the same can be said with the story you talked about the story of god seeing immersing contending restoring that's a story with an energy and if we partner with that i think that's going to take us places we never would have experienced and it's it's not even like okay how intentional can i get about that no just partner with the story right i mean does that make sense steve yeah. how would you react to, to that i mean you've heard me t kind of talk about that and and how does that relate to your experience in israel palestine uh as far as that being the progression yeah yeah i think the first thing for me that i had to deal with was realizing that the the first conflict that i was going to have was between me and god yeah and realizing that understanding that as the story of God is actually going to go against a lot of what I've been taught and been acting like God is. Yeah. So I think that, uh, okay, judgment, let's take judgment as that energy. Living in the kingdom of judgment, thinking you're living in the kingdom of God, right? You're going to have to change kingdoms before you get to even help. And I, you know, right, the speck in your eye. I think for me, this journey has been much more about my goodness. Am I actually living in the kingdom or do I just think I am? And looking for who God really is, trusting the, you know, mentors, people that I see, peacemakers that I meet. Yeah, absolutely. That's the progression. Yeah. I think it makes so much sense. And I see it happening over and over again in the scriptures, right? I mean, yeah, it's in the garden, but it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. God sees and hears the cries of God's people. God, you know, uh, God immerses, I mean, Moses gets immersed in, in the story. I mean, it's just, you see it happening over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So, I mean, can, 
like to throw a bit of a theological monkey wrench into this, and I think this is why it's it's problematic. And this would probably speak to some of the resistance that 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 we're kind of butting up against in our work is like we read the we read the scriptures recognizing that from the moment we pick the fruit, God has been fully committed to restoring everything that went wrong. You know, and and like we read this, yeah, it starts in a garden, it ends in a new city, a new civilization, a new family. Like there's there's a uh, this energy, there's a forward momentum, a, a restorative momentum that's going on. Obviously, the pinnacle of that is is the cross and God actually making good on His promise in 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 flesh and blood. But like like we have a Jesus who says, "Behold, I'm making things new," and um. And I think a, th- a theological problem that we're dealing with is this thought that, like, actually what's going to happen in the world, the world is actually going to go to hell in a handbasket first. There's, there's going to be some sort of a- a- atomic holocaust that is then going to usher in the return of Jesus. And and so I think there's ways in which that theology actually informs some of our nationalism, some of our militarism, and so on and so forth. Like, in some ways, it's actually, like, can we accelerate the atomic holocaust so that Jesus can come back and all of this can be, all of this can be done? Now, if you think about a, a theology that says it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket and then Jesus comes back, what does that do to the practice of peacemaking? Right? Like, peacemaking is not only a waste of time, peacemaking, it's antithetical to the work of God. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. If the world has to go to hell first and then Jesus comes back, being a peacemaker actually slows down the momentum of Jesus' return. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. But live in a space where you're like, no, actually, the atomic holocaust was the cross. It was the cross. It was decisive. And we have a Jesus who says, behold, I'm making all things new. That means we don't hold on until we die or we don't accelerate the return by seeding violence. No, like the great adventure of following Jesus is joining him in making things new in this world, is joining God in the adventure of moving toward what's broken, equipped with compassion and curiosity and humility and tools to heal. Like that is our mandate. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm all I'm all with you. I didn't. I don't think I understood that in that way. I think in the past when I've heard joining God in God's work. It's it's like uh, I could go to a baseball game, but the winner's gonna win, the loser's gonna lose anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I could go from my own experience, and I think what I'm realizing in the world is that, look, the question of why is there so much evil, right? If God has actually waged peace, why isn't it working? And I think that that's directly related to the fact that we are asked to join yeah. for a reason. Yeah, uh, yes. as in if we don't. It's not going to happen. That's right. And that's, that's dicey right. to say. I mean, I, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in God's strength. God is stronger now in my life than he ever has been before. He, she has ever been before. Thank you. But I will tell you that I think that I'm starting to realize that we as people are, are, we are powerful. And we have a yeah. lot to bring to this in a humble way. And I think I'm seeing my joining with that. Uh, and Jerry, you've spoken to it. Steve, you speak to it also. But the creativity that's where the joining is, is in the face of the darkness, in the face of the evil, believing that joining is actually going to help. Totally. Well, totally. Yeah. I would say that like God is doing it, like no matter what, yeah, whether yeah, you yeah. and I not, like restoration is a reality that's being, that, that's being ushered in. 
It's happening. God is unstoppable in that. The, the pain, I think, is that, like, I'm going to miss it. You know, like, I right. I don't get to, if, if I'm, I, I'm going to miss it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to convince myself that, that, that being Christian has something to do with my attendance, my contemplative commitment, singing great songs, being in a small group, doing some service projects from time to time and tithing and then just holding on and then joining God is somehow convincing people intellectually that they should follow Jesus too. You know, that's what joining God means. And, um, and I think that if that's our framework for what it means to be Christian, it's limited, you know, and I want to see people reconciled to the Father through the blood of Jesus, but it is going to require me and you and others actually moving toward people who are different than us and moving toward what's broken in our world, whether that's interpersonal relationship or, or systemic injustice. And as we do that, the great surprise is that's where the restoration is happening. That's where we're participating and that's where we're restored. You know, like we're not just the agents of restoration. As we join God in ushering in the world he's making, we find ourselves restored more and more as well, you know. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I talk about that as an energy. I mean, maybe energy is the wrong word. The kingdom is like it. we begin to play by those rules, meaning if we work toward restoration of others and the world, we ourselves will also be participating in that. And antithetically, if we work in the kingdom of energy or of, of justice or blindness or isolation, we will play by those rules. I mean, it, we just will. And I think where God's sovereignty is so beautiful is that God utterly allows that. God yeah. utterly allows us to choose which kingdom we want to play in and um, keeps inviting us every moment of every day. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah. And that's where the, that's like, that's where the deceiver comes in. The right, Satan right. is, is, and that's the lie is that that's why it's so hard to realize, no, I'm a good Christian. No, I'm judgmental. No, I'm a good Christian. And that like, that's the extent of the deceiving, right? Is yeah. we live our whole lives in this kingdom that we say is light and how dark is your darkness if there's no light in your darkness, right? <sighs> good grief. Someone should write a song about that. Uh, call call Joel Hansen. Ah, Joel, you there? <laughs> okay, uh, a couple more questions. Jared, this is so good. I mean, it's just so, man, I love this. Um, and I love that you and John and TGIP are going to be starting to infect in a good way the fabric of our relationships here in the Twin Cities and how the people in our church think. And so I, I just, I, I love that. I feel like it's, you know, we're only two years old. And it, just to think that some of these ways of thinking could start to uh, grow in us, me and Steve, first and foremost. And if that's all that ever happened, it'd be a beautiful thing. Enough. Um, but if it could start to uh, spread out to our church, that would be so great. All right, Jer, so, um, What's the hardest part of your life right now and what is bringing you the most joy? And that, that question can be as big as it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the, quite personally, the hardest part of my life right now is the fact that, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad of three young kids and it's wonderful and the hardest thing in the world, as you guys can relate to. And, um, but, uh, but we, my wife and I and my kiddos, we just navigated a massive transition. We, uh, we transitioned leadership of the church that I led in the Bay area. And, 
and uh, actually shifted social location from the Bay Area to Bend, Oregon. And that happened eight months ago, so it's still very fresh and very new. And um, and that's that's just it's more jarring than I imagine that it would be, you know. And uh, and the pain of like I really, really, really love the family that I was a part of in the Bay Area, uh, the family that I got to help. Uh, I got to help create and I got to walk with and be walked with. And, and so to move to a place where, um, where you're completely anonymous is both the greatest gift and also, uh, also jarring, you know? And so, uh, so we're, we're finding, we're establishing some, uh, some new rhythms, living into the rhythms that, um, that really work for our family and doing it in a new place. And, uh, and tilling relational soil in, um, in, in a fresh place is challenging and, uh, and wonderful, but, but it is hard, you know, so, so we, we miss our people and are in the process of finding our people. And, uh, and I think that's, that's challenging. Um, I think, uh, I think similarly, the, the work of global immersion and what we're doing nationally and internationally right now is, is accelerating to a place at which I'm just as a, as a, as a young dad and, um, and as a leader and as a social innovator, really asking really significant questions about how, um, how you do this well, how you, how do I, um, how do I hold intention, the work that I'm doing and this, this bizarre call that feels to be true on my life and also recognize that the most important peacemakers that I'll ever cultivate are my three kids. And, um, and so there are days when I feel, or there are weeks when I feel like that tension is being held well, and there are other, there are other weeks where um, where I'm dissatisfied by that. Um, and so that's a real thing. I think about family a lot. I think about what it means to disciple my kids all the time. And, um, and you know, I, I there there are a few rhythms that we are really committed to as a family that uh, that I'm watching come to life in my oldest right now, which is really incredible. And. Um, so some of the greatest joy for me is watching her begin to attach words and um, and have conversations about these five values of our family that are that have been true that she's been living her entire life, but now she knows how to talk about. And um, the greatest joy is um, is hearing her teachers and um, and and neighbors talk about the kind the 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 content of her character and um, and the kind of person she is. It's just it's an incredible thing. And so. While I'm I'm riveted by the work that I'm doing uh, around the world, I find that nothing makes my heart swell more than watching my um, watching my kids um, become a, a bit more like Jesus, and uh, and uh, and I'm watching that in Ava, most specifically. I also I'd also say like there's my wife and I are just in a sweet season. You know, we navigated a really rocky transition, and it was hard, hard, hard. And, uh, but, uh, but John and I always say that like the rubber meets the road in everyday peacemaking in our relationship with our wives. And, and, uh, boy, I tell you what it, um, see, immerse, contend and restore, uh, apply those to your marriage and watch what happens, you know? And when, when you're in a dark place or when you're in pain to immerse and to sit and, and to sit there with compassion and curiosity with one another, uh, is, uh, I mean, suddenly this turns into like how to have a healthy marriage, <laughs> you oh, know, my gosh, yeah. so, I, you know, we just had a baby four months ago and, um, and we're kind of through the, uh, the intoxicated non-sleep of that. And, and Jack and I just find ourselves in a really sweet season right now. And that, that brings a lot of joy to me. 
Steve, same question for you, man. What's the hardest thing in your life right now? What's the thing that's bringing you the most joy? And, and um, I love, Jared, that you talked about family. Steve, you're one of the most intentional people with your family that I know. You plan vacations. You're thinking about your kids. <laughs> you, you know, I have so much to learn, frankly and honestly, from both of you guys in this. But, but how, would you, how would you answer that question? Uh, I think the hardest thing for me right now is as uh, I try to repair relationships in my life. Because relationships are very important to me. You know yeah. that. And yeah. I think I've kind of left the relationship with myself to be last as somebody who has always been labeled uh, creative and labeled an artist, but never having actually really brought anything into the world uh, myself. Um, realizing, especially from uh, life with you, Ween's life with uh, now John and Jer, going through this experience at TGIP, I'm convinced um, beyond a doubt that bringing my own creativity into the world in a in a clean way without like attaching a lot of value to it for myself like that's one of the hardest things uh, for me to do to stand up fully into who I am and believe that's okay uh, because I've, I've done some work with uh, other friendships I've done some work with uh, family right um, extended family but I think I've kind of left boy mm. how I view myself and how am I gonna let myself use the gifts that I've been given in, in that sort of way. And so doing that um, without struggling through it every time I try to create, that's, that's tough and I'm learning. Uh, there's a lot of grace needed. I think the most fun thing, uh, right, uh, is life with my family, life with my kids and Heidi um, is, just brings me back to the most important things. It's nice to be able to have that there every day to remember, okay, uh, light is beautiful. Yeah. 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 So good. Uh, see, immerse, contend, restore. Uh, I, I, I want to like, you know, pin those four words up on my mirror in my bathroom. I mean, there, there's just so much life there. Um, that's the kind of life that, that feels uh, robust, uh, hard, but robust. So, Jared, let's say someone's listening and maybe they're a pastor or they're involved in a church in a pretty significant way and they're hearing you and they're like, man, we got to get TGIP, the Global Immersion Project, uh, out, to our, uh, out to our church to teach us. Where do they go? Kind of what do they do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is uh, for, especially for faith leaders who are listening in, um, Global Immersion doesn't, we don't, we don't specialize in doing one-off experiences. We have a really robust palette of um, of workshops and retreats and um, learning labs uh, that take us into the middle of conflict so that we can learn from peacemakers embedded in those conflicts. That's what um, that's what we're hearing Steve Haynes refer to in Israel Palestine. And um, so we have really robust offerings in terms of getting first touches with the Global Immersion Project. But ultimately, what we do is we accompany churches. Uh, we we build three year pathways. Um, to help churches bring the value of reconciliation to life in their community. And so, um, so many of us, so many of our churches, we um, we kind of give a nod to reconciliation as something that's important. Um, we help you bring that to life. And uh, we help that look like something within your church um, and then as a church in your context. And so, um, the, you know, the, if you're listening in and, and any of this is really catching your attention, you can go to globalimmerse.org 
uh, and uh, you can read more about who we are and what we're doing. Uh, the best, uh, my favorite point of contact is just establishing a call, a Skype call or a, or a phone conversation to get to know one another and, and learn about each other more that way. Um, we do have, uh, you know, there, there are opportunities all year long all year, every year, for you to self-select into one of our uh, one of our experiences, whether it's a, a workshop that comes to your uh, your area, or it's um, it's a learning lab into Israel Palestine, or into immigration in the borderlands between San Diego and Tijuana. That we're always marketing those, and um, so friend and follow us to keep uh, keep up to speed on on those pieces. If there's if the CMRS Contend Restore stuff has really captured your imagination, there are two resources that are coming out soon um, that we can draw your attention to. In the next 30 days, we're going to be launching an e-course that's going to be a, a six-session e-course that's just going to really help ground CMRS Contend Restore into our learning and then help us inform our living. Uh, so that's going to be coming out in the next 30 days. And then um, John and I are in the kind of final stages of uh, of putting down our first book, which is going to come out early, uh, early 2017 that, um, that hopefully we can, uh, we can partner with Steve and others to get the word out on, on when that happens. So, um, so yeah, best, best point of contact is go to globalimmerse.org. Uh, you can find me, uh, there and, uh, and let's have a conversation. Let's talk about what we do, how we do it. Um, because for us, it's as much as learn, it's as, as much about learning about you, uh, and your faith community and where your organization is at as it, as it is about you learning about us. So beautiful. Thanks, Jer. Uh, okay. So, uh, there's one last story I want you to tell and it's, it's on Israel. It's on the Israel-Palestine trip. Uh, Steve and Heidi Haynes are getting ready for a run. It's early morning. It's maybe six a.m. and they're you know they're just talking. They're 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 hanging out. They're you know their eyes are half masked. And then you come charging out, Jer. Apparently, uh, just really, and you have a certain ritual that you start your days oh. with. Apparently, uh, do you want to do you want to tell that story, my friend? Because you know, it, it it really sounds it sounds inspiring. It sounds it's, it is it is it's inspiring. And and I, I should have probably answered like this is what gives me joy. This is what gives me. So here here's kind of my gig. All right, like if you wake up with the right song in your head. You will not be grumpy all day long. You just will not be grumpy. And uh, and so yeah, I remember that morning. It's uh, you know we're we're up on the Sea of Galilee. We're toward the end of our time. People are tired. I can tell that Steve's got some internal issues going on, and and uh, you know <laughs> his, his eyes are dark. <laughs> and uh, so I just walk out of the hotel. And my the song that's always in my head is the Final Countdown. You know I don't know. It's just every morning I wake up with that. And so I walk out and I've just got my arms up. It's 6 a.m. And I'm just doing the da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. And, and Haynes and Heidi just look at me like, oh, my <laughs> God. But I tell you what, uh, I got the rest of them singing that song. We sang it a little bit on our morning run by the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, when's the last time you ran next to the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, uh, Nobody was grumpy the rest of the day. I don't think anybody. <laughs> Nobody was grumpy to begin with, Jer. <laughs> good grief. <laughs> Heidi and I were talking like our energy levels at about a seven and a half, eight. It's looking good. Nothing incorrect or anything, but holy small. 11 comes Goes out. to 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I love that. And I love, I love your energy. I love your joy. It absolutely is infectious. And you uh, absolutely showed me a whole new way uh, to be human. And so thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So good. 
Uh, Jr. Thanks so much, man. Uh, I, I, you know, personally, I'm going to listen to this a few more times because you are just so infectious is a good word in a good way, uh, articulate and visionary when it comes to living a kind of story that really might bring peace to the world. And that is bringing peace to the world. And I think that even language needs to be, you know, that is bringing peace to the world. Um, that we are, uh, we can be and are participants in the great restoration of all things. Um, you know, there's this ancient story the rabbis tell, uh, I mean, I mean, like crazy, but the great darkness was how the world began, right? And, um, and then light came and it, was, it came in this big vessel. And then it was broken, right? It was, it was shattered. And it was this accident happened somehow at the creation of all things. And the light went into all people and all things. And so our work as human beings is to recover and call out the light in all people and all things. And that, of course, is tikkun olam, you know, the restoration of all things. And I, I just, I love that. I love the picture that, um, and that corresponds to me with see. Um, if we can see and believe that there is light, the light of God in all people and all things, and that the light overcomes darkness, yeah. we can participate in a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, beautiful thing. So thank you, Jer. Um, we, Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We end the podcast with uh, this kind of phrase that, that, um, that we say. So we're dust and breath. We're human and holy. We're limited and limitless. And we're in it together. And I, 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 I feel joy that I'm in it together with you and with you too, Haynes. Um, just the friendship is, is sweet. And I look forward to uh, more in the future. And uh, so that's just the gauntlet is thrown down. Genesis Covenant Church people that are, that are listening. Um, I think we, we must go there. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, Jared, peace, my friend. Have a great trip. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys.